0: Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you came into this world to usher in a new age, to bring about something beyond which we could even expect or imagine, that is even better than our wildest dreams. And Lord, you reveal what you have done to us and the faith that has been handed down to us in the ages, through the ages, from the saints that have gone before all the way back to your disciples who walked among the world with you, who saw you and who, whose report of what you have done has allowed us to share in your joy and in your life. So... God, today on this All Saints Day, would you use your word as you have designed it to be used, that it might reveal to us who you are, who we are, and how your great story consumes and draws us closer into you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was uh, recently reading an article um, by Presbyterian pastor Tim Keller. You've heard his name before. Imagine if you've listened uh, to a few sermons here at St. John's. Uh, It was an article on how to lead secular people to Christ, and and Keller is something of a savant in this particular area. Excuse me, and so I find it helpful. Uh, to listen to experts in their area of expertise in particular. And that certainly is uh, Tim Keller's area of expertise, how to engage with a culture that doesn't know the gospel, a secular culture, and to to win them to Christ. is something that he's very good at. Here's the premise of this article that he was writing. He says uh, that there's this Christian kingdom of God worldview, right? A worldview is a collection of beliefs that inform our moral principles and that, in turn, inform the decisions that we make. All right, so he says there's this, there's this Christian kingdom of God worldview, but then there's also a non-Christian worldview. There's many of them, uh, actually, but they work the same way. Their collection of different beliefs, right, that, that inform different moral principles that lead to different decisions. And Keller says that if if Christians are going to have any chance of leading secular people to Christ, then he says we need two things. We need to know clearly what is inside and outside the bounds of our own Christian worldview, right? What's inside and outside the bounds of our own beliefs that inform our moral principles, that then inform our decisions. But not only that, we need to know how the prevailing secular worldview works even better than those who hold to those beliefs. He says we need to know what they believe better than they know what they believe. Because only then are we in a, pre- in a position, one, to, to preserve what's been handed down to us, but then also to invite others into it. To see why it is in fact a better fit. The best fit for their own understanding of their experience of the world. He goes on to describe um, uh, a pretty detailed process for how to lovingly deconstruct the secular cultural beliefs that make Christianity a non-starter. And then reconnecting those cultural longings that are left with the truth and the beauty and the power of the gospel. And the first step of this process, Keller says, is to capture the imagination of the person to whom you're speaking with a short and vivid and relevant to them description of the gospel that leaves them with this thought. Even though it's not true, wouldn't it be amazing if it was? That is the thought he said that you need to get to. He said there's no point in moving on unless you've gotten to that point where you have the person that you're speaking to thinking, I know it can't be true, but uh, how amazing, how wonderful would it be if it were? Well, it would seem uh, that our good friend here, Tim Keller, is familiar with the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, because that is exactly what Jesus is doing at the beginning of his public ministry. John Stott, uh, an Anglican pastor uh, of some years past, said this, Immediately after his baptism and temptation in the wilderness, Jesus had begun to announce the good news that the long-promised kingdom of God was on the threshold. He had come, Jesus Himself, to inaugurate it. With Him, the new age had dawned, and the rule of God had broken into history. My oh my, wouldn't it be amazing if that were true? Wouldn't it be amazing? I imagine that's what the people of the time were asking themselves. Wouldn't it be amazing if He really could cast out demons? Wouldn't it be amazing if he, if he really came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God like he says he did? If he really healed that man with a withered hand on a Sabbath, in the synagogue, in front of the Pharisees, no less. Wouldn't that be amazing if that were true? And so the people began to gather around him. And Jesus addresses his disciples in front of these crowds. In Matthew, this is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in Luke's Gospel, it's the Sermon on the Plain. These are most likely different events, uh, but it's the same overall content, it's the same overall message, and they actually serve the same purpose in both Gospels. They, they both come at the beginning as Jesus is inaugurating his, his ministry in the world and to the world. And so the sermon is to be understood with this context, right? What Jesus is saying to these crowds and to his disciples is is to be understood in the context that this new age has dawned, as Stott says, that the rule of God has broken into history. He says Jesus' sermon describes what human life and human community look like when they come Under the gracious rule of God. So let's be clear. This is not a description of how the world should be. This is a description of how the kingdom is. As Keller makes clear, it's important that we keep that in mind. Right? This is not a description of how the world should be. This is a description of how the kingdom is. This is written to Christians to describe the character of the Christian and how that Christian is to operate in a world that holds to a different and conflicting set of values. This isn't how to get in. It's how to think and how to act for those who already are in and yet are still living in a world that is hostile to what they now hold to be true. John Stott continues, the followers of Jesus are to be different. Different from both the compromised church and the secular world. The sermon is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament to the Christian counterculture. This is life in the kingdom, a fully human life lived out under God's rule. And so as we read and, and seek to understand today these words of Jesus, here's what I want us to see. First is this. Right, the ethics of the kingdom that Jesus describes here, the moral principles that he lays out in his address, they are conspicuously and purposefully opposite of the ethics of the world. That's the first thing that I want us to see. The second is this, and we'll conclude with this thought. The kingdom advances at our expense. And that, in fact, is a good thing Because what we lose has infinitely less value than what we gain. Sounds bad, right? That the kingdom would advance at our own expense. But uh, hold on to your hats. Because it turns out that that's a good thing. But first, let's look at how the ethics of the kingdom are conspicuously opposite of the ethics of the world. We see this in in several different ways in this passage. And if you want to follow along, we're in Luke chapter 6. And our passage begins with the 20th verse. First, let's just look at the structure, the way that this uh, passage, the sermon that Jesus gives is laid out. He begins with uh, verses 20 through 22, describing a kingdom character, and he does so giving four beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. But then... He contrasts those with four woes in verses 24 through 26. Look at that. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And so we have four beatitudes and four woes right next to each other in direct contrast to each other. Now notice not just their placement, but notice that they parallel each other in their content. Blessed are the poor, the hungry now, who weep now, Woe to the rich, the full now, who laugh now. Now look at how they end, the Beatitudes and the woes. Look at verses 23 and compare it with verse 26. Christians can rejoice under persecution on Jesus' behalf because that's how the prophets were treated. That's what verse 23 says. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold... Your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. The prophets were persecuted for bringing the truth of God's kingdom. But then look at verse 26. Be careful, Jesus says, when everyone speaks well of you, because that's how the false prophets were treated. False prophets said what the people wanted to hear. False prophets still do that today, and they are lauded for it. Woe to you, Jesus says, verse 26, when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And so there's a very clear distinction that is being made. There's a a very clear uh, contrast that is being drawn between this ethic of the kingdom and this ethic of the world. The Beatitudes and the woes, they, they lay out the dividing line that makes us as Christians distinct from the world. And that distinction is for the world's benefit and for ours. Right? It shows us what we are made of. The character that has been instilled in us from our creator and our redeemer, from our God and our king. And it shows the secular world that what we have to offer is something that is completely different. That it's antithetical and that it's more powerful than what the world values. Now, I have to throw a caution here. Because when we blur the lines, then we lose the distinction, we lose the distinct appeal, excuse me, of the kingdom. Right? When we blur the lines between the ethic of the kingdom of God and the ethic of the world, we lose the distinct appeal of the kingdom itself. Let me explain what I mean. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, another great preacher, said, One of the essential and most obvious things about a Christian is that he is a man who lives always realizing he is in the presence of God. Right? His every action should be performed in the light of this intimate relationship with God. He is not, as it were, a free agent. He belongs to another kingdom in another way. If that's true, if, if the Christian lives always realizing that he is in the presence of God, then the non-Christian, therefore, lives only sometimes, if ever, realizing that he is in the presence of God. Therefore, the world is all he's got, right? He lives for its gains. That's, why, that's what the woes uh, reveal. Another great theologian said this, Poverty and hunger, sorrow, persecution, those are the very things which secular men labors to avoid. Riches and fullness, merriment and popularity are precisely the things which men are always struggling to attain. In the state of life which our Lord blesses the world dislikes. The people to whom our Lord says woe unto you are the very people whom the world admires and praises and imitates. And so here's the caution. We, to our ruin, blur the lines between the kingdom and the world when we equate success in the kingdom with riches in the world, with fullness in the world, with joys of the world, with a good reputation in the world. All right, let me be clear. There are Christians who are rich. There are Christians who never go hungry. There are Christians who seem to walk a gilded path through life. We we might know some of those, and we aren't so ignorant as to assume they've never experienced any kind of trauma or, or suffering or sadness, but it does appear that they've experienced maybe a little bit less than their fair share. They're Christians who are well loved, who are widely respected. The point isn't that these things are bad. The point is that they're secondary. The Christian's primary concern at all times, over and above anything else, is their relationship with God and their desire to be like him no matter the consequences. That is what the kingdom offers. That is what Jesus brings in this sermon. This is what makes the kingdom distinct and this is what gives it power. Continuing on, as we look at the structure and the contrast between the ethic of the kingdom and of the world the the emphasis on this oppositeness of both of these things continues as we continue on with our passage look at verses 27 through 31 they give us an illustration of kingdom character in practice so it's just an illustration. It's not to be uh, taken as uh, uh, something that should be followed mechanically. It's more to say that the type of character that is instilled in this person when, when placed in these circumstances uh, would bring about this example of an action. So look at verse 27. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So that on one side reveals the kingdom ethic, but then verses 32 through 34, in contrast, reveal what a not-kingdom character looks like in practice. Right? Loving those who love you, Jesus says, is not enough. It doesn't give a clear enough distinction for you or for the world to know what you are made of, to know what makes God's kingdom different. Again, the point isn't to not do these things or that these things can't be done in a way that brings glory to God, right, with an underlying kingdom purpose. The point is that these aren't the type of things that reveal the Christian character because they conflate rather than making distinct kingdom and worldly values. Again, a caution. When we blur the lines we lose the distinct appeal of the kingdom. Here's another way that we do it, right? We blur the lines between the kingdom and the world when we expect a worldly value to distinguish us as kingdom people. Right? Loving those who love you is a worldly value. It doesn't distinguish us as people of the kingdom. That's what Jesus says. He says what we need is more than that. We don't just need love for those who love you. We need love for those who don't love you back. Don't just do good for those who can do good for you. Do good for those who actually intend you harm. Lend to those who have no possible means of repayment. This is how you show the world the character that you have inherited from the God that you serve. Verse 35. This is the character of the God that we serve. He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Right? It's because he loved us when we didn't love him back. It was good though we brought him harm and intended to bring him harm. He gave to us what we could not possibly repay. This is the rule of God that has broken into history. This is what is being ushered in by this very man, Jesus, doing for us here. What he here asks us to do for others. Right? That's what we see Jesus doing on the cross. He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. And we can follow in his footsteps because he has done it for us first. Now let me end with this last thought. I mentioned earlier how the kingdom advances at our own expense. And that... Comes across at first maybe as something that's not good. But let me explain. That is, in fact, a good thing because what we lose has infinitely less value than what we gain. What we lose is of the world and it's lost to the world. Now, knowing this doesn't make that loss any less painful, doesn't make that loss any less real, but knowing this does give that loss perspective and purpose. Here's the perspective that it gives. I'm not of this world. Therefore, my wins and my losses in this world, my interactions with this world, they're less important to me than my relationship with God. That is foremost and primary in my mind as a Christian. And so, yes, I may lose some things, but in the end, I don't lose anything that is of ultimate value. I can give up my cloak and my tunic. I can take a slap on one cheek and the other because I haven't actually lost anything that I truly hold dear. And in fact, in so doing, I've revealed to the other what it is that I hold so dear and what gives me power to stand in those circumstances, to act in such a way as to love my enemy. And also gives purpose, right? My loss... Though it is suffered now, it's rewarded now as well as a kingdom ethic and its power is made clear, right? You see when I react in such a way who I am, the character that I have been given and what I hold to be true and valuable. My loss is rewarded now as my status is made clear as a member of the kingdom of God. And my loss is rewarded later, as scripture says, as Jesus says, when what is most important to me, my relationship to God, is fully restored. So friends, as we look to the saints that have gone before us on this All Saints Day, realize that the most notable among them are those that clearly held To this kingdom character that Jesus describes here in his sermon on the plain in Luke's gospel. Sermon on the mount in Matthew's gospel. In a culture that was hostile to what they value. I ask that you would look through those saints to see their motivations. Because there you will find the message of the sermon on the mount or the plain. You will find Christians whose primary concern at all times over and above Anything else is their relationship with God and their desire to be like him, no matter the consequences. And so the question that's before us is, can we follow their example? Can we honor their legacy and their ministry as they followed Christ? And I would say the answer is yes, but only by making our relationship with God our primary concern in the same way that they did. Wouldn't it be amazing... Friends, wouldn't it be amazing if it were true that the new age has dawned, that the rule of God has broken into history, that Jesus has gone before and done for us what we didn't deserve so that we could go and then do for others what they don't deserve, that we actually get to be a part of God's plan of restoration and healing and redemption? Friends, wouldn't it be amazing if that were true? I trust that you know, or will know soon, that indeed it is. That this new age has broken in. That we can participate in it. And that for our generation, it starts right here, with us. Amen.